Hey there, I'm Ashley and I'm a proud mama of two beautiful kiddos, a wife, a health and wellness coach, and a middle and high school shop teacher. Hi, I'm Roberta, mama, wife, educator. I'm an entrepreneur and homeschool mom navigating the work, family, social life balance. Together, we will discuss various topics near and dear to our hearts for teachers and mamas, like routines, health, habits, self-care, and so, so much more. Living a healthy lifestyle is for everyone from young children to adults. Health, wellness, and emotional and social well-being starts at home and should be expanded upon in the classroom. Everyone can benefit from the Teacher Mamas podcast. So if you're ready to learn some helpful tips, let's do this thing. Hello, hello. Welcome to our second interview with another one of my best friends from Alaska. She taught with me for two years while we were up there and she stayed even longer. God bless her soul. (laughs) Uh, But Kaisa Tabor has so many good ideas on, especially if you are still navigating COVID in an area that you're in, coronavirus, shutdowns, distance learning, all that stuff. Lots of helpful tips to be able to self-care and uh, set boundaries for yourself at home, at school, with your kids, uh, with other parents and stuff like that. So really hope you enjoy this episode and get some great ideas to start implementing into your day. Enjoy the episode with Kaisa Tabor. So, hey, Kaisa, how's it going? Good. How are you guys this morning? Good. Good. Uh, Very excited. Our second interview here with my friend Kaisa from Alaska. So I guess we'll just start out with the first question. Uh, We want to know about your educational background story, why you got into the education field, and we would like to specifically know your Alaska story. I already know most of your Alaska story, but. Well, so I, I think I kind of always grew up being a teacher. I'm the oldest child, so I'm going to fit some stereotypes here, but um, I grew up with a, in a family that had really high value of education. It was always instilled in us that education was important. Um, during the summer, my mom would get us like those homeschool programs. And so even during the summer, she was like, you guys are still learning. So um, education was always really big in my family. And I loved going to school. I always loved going to school. So I think when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And when I went off to university, like I already had my major declared. I I knew I wanted to go into education. I knew I wanted to be a high school teacher. And so I did. I went to school in Kansas. I I kind of left right away um, from Oregon. I went to school in Kansas and I got my degree in uh, English education, six through 12 language arts. So I knew right away I wanted to be an English teacher. English was always my favorite subject. I had amazing English teachers growing up. And so that I think made a big difference in me loving it. Um, But my family also are like big readers that was instilled in me really young as well. So 
I always loved to read and I loved everything about the English language. So I went to school to become an English teacher. I did my um, degree in four years, four and a half years, actually, my student teaching was the last half year. And I was really lucky to be able to do my student teaching back in Portland, um, closer to family, which was nice because as soon as I graduated, I went to a job fair and I kind of wanted an adventure. So I decided I was gonna teach in Alaska. And part of that too was I, I went to a private university. So it was a little spendy. I had a little bit of student loan debt when I got out of school. So I also knew if I went to Alaska, um, there would be some financial benefit to that as well. And so I went to this job fair in Oregon um, and I was there for about 45 minutes. I did one interview and got the job in the Bering Strait uh, School District. And so it was really funny. I had gone to the job fair and then I had gone home and my mom had gone to an appointment of some kind and we had both left at the same time with this idea of, well, we'll see you later this afternoon. Um, and I actually made it home before she made it home from her appointment. She came in and she was like, what happened? And I was like, I got a job. So it was kind of exciting, but I ended up in Alaska. I was there for five years. It was, uh, it was an experience. It was definitely a shock to the system. When I flew up to Alaska, I was told that everyone dressed professionally here. And so I dressed professionally. I had on some dress pants, some nice high heel, you know, pointed toe shoes. And I was uh, surprised to continually get on a smaller and smaller and smaller plane. I think I landed in our little village of Stebbins um, and my plane was like a six seat plane. And I walked off in these high heel shoes and dress pants and everyone who saw me thought this girl's never gonna make it. And that was kind of how I ended up in Alaska. And I did make it, I last, <laughs> I was there for five years. Um, I, I love, I just have to interrupt because that story makes me laugh every time. And like when we interviewed our friend Becky yesterday, she's, she's the one who originally told that story to us. And it was so funny because uh, you just imagine this, like, so you're like in the village and you're surrounded by wildlife and mountains and ocean. And what you look at walking off the plane is this like pristy little pumped up <laughs> lady and they're like oh my gosh there is no way that she is gonna make it in the village <laughs> and right. so that, just, that makes me laugh <laughs> so and I remember when I moved up there too I did not because I had spoken with the previous principal of this school and they had told me everyone dressed professionally no one wears jeans no one I think I packed like one pair of jeans I had no, like no casual clothes. I only dressed professional, packed professional clothes. So I remember like immediately I was having to go online and buy like a whole new wardrobe so that I could survive. But, you know, it was, it, it was definitely the adventure I wanted. I, I, I do say, um, you know, everyone always asks me, Alaska, that's crazy. Why'd you do that? And I, I will have to say it was kind of the best 
first teaching experience because you experience everything when you are in kind of that rural kind of isolated situation. You really learn what it means to become a teacher and you learn how to deal with situations that you maybe didn't think you were going to deal with. And, um, you really build your skill as an educator. And so I do say that I think it was probably the best choice I ever could have made to kind of get my feet under me as an educator, um, and to experience so much. I kind of you know, very few things shock me now when I'm in the classroom, now that I'm not in Alaska, when I'm, you know, when things happen, I'm kind of like, meh, I've dealt with that before. So it, it yeah. I think it was a great learning experience. I agree 100%. Um, it's funny because like other teachers will be like, oh my gosh, this happened today. I can't believe it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like <laughs> just another day. Right, exactly. So, and like, how about we didn't ask Becky this yesterday? This has been a good question, but um, like, okay, you talked about all the different experiences and stuff. How about all the different hats you had to wear while we were up there? Uh, yeah. So, as um, a in a rural community like that with a limited staff and limited support from the community, you do end up taking on a lot of roles. So let's see, I taught seven through 12th grade. So I had all different grade levels. Um, it was me and one other English teacher. So we kind of were like, we had each other, but on a limited capacity, because I would do like seventh grade, she would have eighth grade, but we could, we could you know, work together a little bit planning wise. Um, you had to build a curriculum because there wasn't really a curriculum for you. Um, as I moved like later on, that was at the beginning, but then later on at my time there, you know, I ended up teaching a couple different elective classes. I was in charge of student council for a couple years, I think. Um, I ended up being kind of our positive behavior intervention specialist coordinator for all grade levels, K through 12. Um, <clears throat> I was a volleyball coach while I was up there. And just, I, you know, you end up doing so many more roles than you think you're going to do. Um, and just being so much more involved than you think you're going to be involved. Um, I remember uh, having to go and like do observations in like a kindergarten classroom and look at like how can I help with behavior issues that I see in kids there and there were a lot of behavior issues in this community simply because of just some of the unstructuredness of just the community dynamic led to a lot of behavior issues within the classroom whereas you know when you have a kind of poverty situations in such a small community and a lot of the issues that arise with that. You also had a lot of the issues that you see in a lot of um, small insulated communities as far as alcoholism, drug abuse, um, physical abuse. 
and things like that. So you have a lot of the trauma that comes along with that, that gets shown, demonstrated in the classroom because for once there's a setting that is more structured and that's difficult for kids who aren't used to that. And so having those things to deal with and try to give guidance for, and then on top of that, try to be a good teacher, try to do everything you can to help kids learn. Oh, and you're fighting against the elements of weather and just the time of year where it could be daylight almost 24 hours a day and kids are playing outside till two in the morning and then trying to go to school and sleeping. It just, it was a crazy experience and a crazy time to try to balance everything. Yeah. And it's funny, the question that I always get asked when I say that I was in Alaska was, oh my gosh, didn't the darkness bother you? And I'm like, no, it was the light. light. Yes. (laughs) Everyone always asks that. And I'm like, actually, the yeah, and not- they don't, they don't think about that. And I'm like, no, we live in Minnesota. We go to, we go to school where, when it's dark and we come home when it's dark. And it was basically the same up there during the winter. Yeah. But what really messes you and the entire village up is the light because it's light until three in the morning. And well, it's really light. I mean, pretty much the whole time. It doesn't really right. get dark in the, in the summertime or like the fall or the spring, but yeah. So yeah. And then you have kids showing up at school and they haven't slept all night because they've been playing out Mm -hmm. and you're like, Oh, I would remember like one in the morning banging on my window and yelling out the go home, go to sleep. It'd be like kindergartners running around outside. Oh, it was just, it was a crazy Mm -hmm. experience. But what would you say then would be like the hardest part about living in Alaska? I think the hardest part about living in Alaska, and I think, I mean, you can look at the statistics of what goes on in Alaska. It has one of the highest youth suicide rates in the country. Um, We had some situations with that when we were in the village. Um, I, I think I remember... It was my last year up there. I think one of my former students had committed suicide. And I remember showing up to school that morning and our principal calling us all into the office or into, I think, one of the classrooms and telling us and then having to turn around and try to teach, carry on as if not that nothing had happened, but to try to give a sense of normalcy to our students because it wasn't normal. It wasn't normal to have to deal with those kind of emotions. And then as a teacher to have had it be a former student, that was hard as well. Like to try to put on the brave face and try to look like you have it all together when inside your heart is breaking. Um, That was hard. And then Alaska also has a very high rate of teen pregnancy. So kind of those things that shock the system where we do see that in the lower 48, we do see teen pregnancy happen, but it's not as abundant um, percentage wise as it is in Alaska. I, I remember my first year there, I think I had four students who were pregnant, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think of the high school 
level, seventh through 12th grade itself was made up of what, 70 kids. So four out of 70, that's pretty high percentage. And that was pretty typical for every year. We had quite a few teen moms and then kids going through our system who had multiple kids themselves. They were still children going through school and they were trying to raise children. So I think that was really challenging. So I think all of those things that we kind of take for granted as educators in the lower 48, that there are systems in place to help support those things. There are systems in place that help educate against teen pregnancy. There are programs to help students who are struggling mentally and emotionally. And those things aren't really in place as much in Alaska and, or they are in place, but just the access to them because the communities are so isolated, it's so hard to access those services. It's not like you have a counselor who's just readily available for you to go and see like you have in the lower 48. Um, right. And like doctors and right. dentists and um, veterinarian, even, I mean, like we had, it was like a miracle the second year I was there when we had, when the army came in and they right. provided all those services for everybody in the village and, um, yeah, just like stuff like that. There's not, there's not people just available. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so it's just, it's a hard situation to be in. And, you know, you feel like you're making such a difference up there because you're giving opportunity, but then at the same time, you feel like you're also pounding against a brick wall in a way, um, because there's just so much cyclical behavior and cyclical trauma that happens within a small, commu a small community like that. Um, <clears throat> that makes it hard to break those cycles, I guess. Um, and, you know, even now you see, like, I'm, I still have a lot of connections with people who are in the village and every now and again, I still see posts come up like, oh, we miss you so-and-so because that person committed suicide or memorials or things like that, because it's still so prevalent in the villages, especially the villages of Alaska. And so it's hard because you, you wanna say that you made a big difference or that you had an impact. And I know I did, um, but at the same time, it's hard to see that. And it's hard to be up there. That's what makes it hard to be there is, I think as teachers, we all, feel like we want to make a huge difference. We want to make an impact in our own small way. And we do, but it's hard when you don't always see it. I'd say that was probably, yeah, the hardest part for me too, is just like that cyclical thing. Like you, you make headway and then something else happens to just put you two steps backwards again. And then you make headway and then something else happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are in teaching in Yuma, Arizona now, and you've been there for eight, years? eight years. Oh my gosh. Okay. I know. <laughs> when I moved to Yuma, I said I had to thaw out from because I went from the extreme <laughs> of Alaska to the extreme of Arizona. And yeah. I think I'm thawed now, but I'm still there. Uh, so, so I lost some years in there. Every time we get together, uh, 
we always we're always like oh my gosh we've known each other for this long okay so I lost years again so what are some major differences in Alaska versus Yuma I guess because it's only been Alaska Stebbins that you worked in and then now Yuma so what are the two differences major differences so some major differences we I you know, I went from a low income poverty in Alaska to low income poverty in Yuma. So that is similar in the sense of there's still this, this dichotomy of poverty. Um, however, the way it's dealt with is so different. So um, there's so many more resources available in Yuma and in, I would say the lower 48 in general, but um, it's funny because there are more resources, but less because funding is a big difference. Tons of funding in Alaska, very little funding in Arizona. So that's a huge difference, but you become really creative with how you, uh, how you use your money and how you come up with things. Um, so that's a huge difference. Population, I work in a border town. So Yuma is a border town. It's on the border of Mexico and California. So for us, we have a high um, like transient, transient population, a lot of moving in for the season, moving out for the season. It's a big farming community. Um, so we see a lot of movement among our population. It's also a military town. So we get a lot of movement there as well. So that was a big difference for me because in Alaska, it's like, I had the same kids every five years. Like I'd have them for seventh grade and then I'd have them for eighth grade and then I'd have them for ninth grade. And so there was a real challenge with having to try to find new ways to teach things because I had the same kids. So I was like, I can't reuse anything. Um, but in Arizona, that's not the case you have so much movement that the hard thing is you have kids coming in with so many gaps. Like I'll get a kid come in halfway through a unit and I'm like, where are you coming from? What have you learned? And so trying to fill those gaps and try to serve those kids the best as possible. I also teach in Arizona, I teach English language learners. So I teach a program called SCI, which is Structured English Immersion. And it is meant to teach English to non-English speakers. Um, you have bilingual ELL programs all throughout the United States, but because of where I'm located, 100% of my English language learner population is Hispanic. And so they're either coming directly from Mexico, moving into the United States and learning English, or they're coming from California or somewhere where it's a predominantly Spanish speaking household. And so they're learning English and I'm having to try to teach English as a first language to, to students. Um, and that has its own set of challenges, but I love those kids. I love them. Like I get real mama bear over them. I'm very protective of my English language learners. They're my children. Um, and so I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love my English language learners. They bring joy to my life. They drive me crazy. Don't get me wrong. They drive me crazy, but they also bring so much joy to my life. 
Um, so that's a huge change. In fact, even within our general education population or gen ed population, 50% of our students come from a Spanish speaking household. And so they've all most or about half of them are from a background of maybe English being their second language. But because they grew up elementary school through high school, by the time they reach high school, they're more fluent in English. So that's a big difference. Um, another big difference is just the resources. I kind of mentioned that earlier, how Alaska had limited resources because it was so isolated. But in Arizona, there's so many resources available um, as far as like counseling services and mental health services, but also just resources in general, even for me as a teacher, like I can actually go to the teacher store if I want and buy materials or, you know, as, in a personal way, I have more resources available to me. I say um, my, I, my quality of life, I think improved when I moved to Arizona because I was able to have more of a life outside of just being a teacher. Um, because in Arizona with it being so isolated, I had a great community of friends, but it wasn't like we could go to the movies together. Or we could go out shopping or we could go to the restaurant and hang out or whatever, you know? So it, it did make, um, when I moved to Arizona, that, that freedom to have kind of a life outside of education opened up. Yeah. And for those who don't know our actual like where we lived we lived in the old school building which they turned into apartments and we were actually connected to the school so yeah by a ramp so <laughs> we had uh, we had running water which was nice because there were some other villages in our district where the teachers did not have running water so it was while we were very close to the school and you really couldn't get away with from it it was nice because we had running water yes <laughs> simple letters. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us, what are you um, teaching now? So you've been, mm-hmm. you've been in Arizona for eight years, you said? Yes. So for the first four years I was in Arizona, I taught middle school, seventh and eighth grade English language arts. But now I'm at the high school level. Um, I work at one of the local high schools. I teach ninth grade English. I also teach, as I mentioned, um, our SEI, Structured English Immersion Program, to our English language learners, level one. So there are baby English speakers. They're coming with very little knowledge of English. We call it pre-emergent English skills, which Mm -hmm. means sometimes I get students who speak no English at all. Um, And that's all grade levels. That can be ninth through 12th grade. They get placed based on their language ability, not on their grade level. Um, And so depending on how well they learn English, they can move on to the next level, which is more higher level English. Um, Mm -hmm. But I teach the SEI 1 class. (laughs) Um, And then I'm also the instructional leader, um, which... And that's what they call it in our district, but it could be called the department chair or the department lead. Those are the other kind of terms that get used. So I'm the English instructional leader 
um, for our English department at Kofa High School. Okay. Do you think uh, being that leader, do you have more hours or extra work maybe beyond the typical work day? <laughs> yes. Um, so <laughs> they give us a period, they call it our IL period, our instructional leader period, and we're supposed to get all of our work done <laughs> during that one period, but it never happens that way. Yeah. Um, I am pretty much on call. I think there have even been times I've been like on the phone with Ashley or doing a message and I'm like, hold on, I have to answer this because it's one of my teachers calling and it'll be like seven at night or <laughs> on the weekend or whatever. Um, just because you, when you're in a leadership position that happens, like you have to kind of be available. Um, because emergencies arise, you never know what's going to happen. But also just your, what you have to do, it can't be accomplished in one hour a day. It's just not possible. There's so much that goes into being a leader um, and being in a leadership position that I'm, I'm doing my leadership position more than just the one allotted hour a day. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, because we don't have those kinds of positions here. What kind of like emergencies come up? I'm just curious, like outside of school hours. Um, so a perfect example happened on the very last day of the semester um, this year. Last day of school, before we go on Christmas break, I got a phone call at 10 p.m. at night. I was already asleep, but I saw the message in the morning when I woke up. Um, but I got a phone call that said, my babysitter canceled on me. I don't have anyone to watch my two kids. I'm not sure if I'll be in to work tomorrow. Last day of the semester, grades are due. Everything needs to be posted. Gonna be impossible to find a sub to cover on the last day of the semester. That's what I woke up to in the morning. So at 5.30 in the morning, I was calling my teacher, hoping that she had made arrangements for a sub. Luckily, um, she was able to find another babysitter. And so she was still able to come in. But those are the types of emergencies that happen. Um, I've gotten phone calls before about uh, teachers' cars breaking down, not being able to make it into work. Um, car accidents, I had, I've had that happen before where I've been notified that one of my teachers was in a car accident um, and they're in the hospital, that's happened. So it's a lot of those things that come up that I then have to try to think of, okay, I need to make sure there's sub coverage. I need to make sure there's sub plans. My teacher's in the hospital, so I can't ask that teacher for sub plans, um, things like that. I've also- So you guys don't have like a specific person that finds you subs. You have somebody in each department that does that. We have a sub coordinator who is in charge of scheduling subs, but as is probably the case where you're at as well, there is a shortage of subs. So a lot of times we do what's called sub coverage where we as teachers use our planning period to sub for other teachers because there just aren't enough subs to fill all the classrooms. And yeah, we do that um, a lot lately yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard when, you know, if it's a planned absence, if you know you're going to be gone and you can put your put in for a sub early enough, then the sub coordinator usually can find someone. But when it's an emergency situation where someone's calling me at 10 at night or 
I find out at 5.30 in the morning that they're not going to be in, there usually isn't time to find a sub. So then it's a matter of me having to contact the sub coordinator and let them know like, hey, we're going to need coverage. And for me, from my side of it, it's more an issue of I need to make sure there are sub plans. I need to make sure there's some kind of plan for the kids for that day. Um, I have to make sure the room is prepared because it was an unscheduled absence. So the teacher didn't do that. Um, the teacher didn't have time to prepare for there to be a sub in there. So I have to make sure it's my job to make sure that that's prepared for. There have been situations as well um, where we've had teachers who have not been able to finish out the school year. And when that happens, that becomes my responsibility as well. Um, a couple years ago, I had two teachers who were not able to fill, finish out the school year. And so until we were able to hire a long-term sub, I was in charge of doing the sub plans and the grading for those classes um, as well. So on top of my own class workload, I was also creating sub plans and every day going in and collecting the work and grading that work and making sure that those kids were getting an education as well. So those types of things come up as, as well. Um, we don't like those ones to come up, but it does happen occasionally. Hmm. And my guess is you weren't getting paid the amount of money that you deserve for that. Uh, well, I, I don't. It's okay. You don't have to answer that question. Um, but I will say, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it. We're all educators here. So, but you don't go into education for the money because if that was what you went into education for, you wouldn't stay very long just because mm -hmm. across the board, educators do not get paid what we should get paid. With that lead position kind of like overtaking a part of your after school life, how do you balance your work and family and friends and all that? So one thing I actually learned and started this in Alaska um, is it, and it sounds really lame and structured, but it really does help my life <laughs> in so many ways. But I have rules. I set rules for myself. So on school days, my rule is that whether I'm done or not with work, I am going home at 4.30. Like that's my cutoff time. So school gets out at 2.45 for me. And <clears throat> that means that and our contract time is till three, right? So that gives me an hour and a half after school so that I can get work done. If I get it done, awesome. If not, I stop, I do it the next day. Um, my life is not, I, I love being a teacher. It is my calling, it's my passion, but it's not who I am. It doesn't define me. And so I do have that rule that at 4.30, I'm done. It's my job. I love my job, but it's my job. And I'm done with my job and I go home. Um, I also have a rule that I, I do have to lesson plan over the weekend. It's inevitable that it happens. Um, there's no possible way I would be able to get everything done that needed to get done to prepare for the coming week if I did not do some work over the weekend. But I do also have a rule that 
I will only lesson plan for one of the week weekend days. So Saturday and Sunday, I typically lesson plan on Saturdays so that on Sunday I can go to church. I can spend time with friends. I can spend time with myself <laughs> if I want. Um, so Saturday is usually the day I set aside to do my lesson planning and I will get my lesson planning done on that day so that I can have the rest of the weekend um, to rejuvenate and to rest and relax and recover. And then so that's um, changed from Alaska because I remember your planning days in Alaska were on Fridays. Yes, it was Friday night and I would stay at school until I was done planning for the entire week, which meant that there were some days that I was leaving the school at like two or three in the morning. <laughs> so that has changed um, mainly because I don't want to get locked into my school property <laughs> on um in Arizona, because they do have a gate, they lock us in. Um, but also because I coach volleyball. And so with practice, I would not, I don't have the ability to then stay after with practice, I don't get done till six or 630. And so it just, it's not really feasible. So I do set aside Saturday. Um, to do my lesson planning on the weekend. I also have a rule that I will not respond to parent or student emails after my contract hours. So three o'clock is when my contract ends. And so if I get a student or a parent email, I will respond to it the next school day. I do not respond to those emails once my contract hours have ended. Um, that wasn't so much a rule for me until this last year with the onset of COVID. Um, we were getting, when, when things were shut down in 2020, when we were all teaching at home, we were getting emails from students and parents. I remember getting an email at like 2.30 in the morning from students. And it was like, the email was written in a way where it was like, I just submitted this. Can you grade it? And then five minutes later, I had another email from that same student. You haven't graded it yet. Like it is two 30 in the morning. So I didn't see it till I woke up the next day, but, um, but I really, I used to not have really a boundary. I used to answer emails from students when I was at home, they come through on my phone, but I really did set that boundary for myself because I just feel like there's a respect issue in that. Um, I'm, like I said, teaching, I love teaching, but it's my job. And I feel like I would not be calling someone about a work thing outside of their working hours. Like I, I don't have the ability to call my doctor when my doctor's at home. And so I just don't feel like I need to respond to emails that are sent while I'm at home. And then um, I, I really work hard to uh, make sure that my life is balanced. I do set aside time to spend with friends. I'm involved in my church. I help out with that a lot. And I think it's healthy to find something outside of school to get involved in, um, to kind of make sure that you do have a life that is not just school. I, I am involved in a lot with school as well. I coach volleyball and I do go to a lot of school events. I help out at a lot of school events 
because I choose to, I love doing it and I choose to do that. Um, but I think that it's healthy to be involved in things outside of school, to have pleasures and enjoyment outside of school. I like to travel. Um, Disneyland is like my favorite place on earth. Being in Arizona, it's quite convenient. It's only a four hour drive. So I do tend to visit Disneyland a lot, but I love to travel in general um, all over the United States. And so that's something that I really have made a priority for myself is to get out of town to get away um, and make sure that I have time to be with friends and family and have a life outside of my profession. I think those are all really important. And I think it's um, all educators need to have that email slash phone call slash text, like whatever you, I know, like with with COVID, a lot of us gave out phone numbers and stuff so we could get a hold of um, parents and 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 kids and stuff. But it's important to have those boundaries in place because I know, especially last year with COVID, I remember a teacher asking like, well, what are we supposed to do? Like these kids are only responding if we're answering outside of ours. And I'm thinking to myself, like, then they wait. <laughs> like it stinks. But I mean, what are we conditioning to them to do then? We're conditioning them to uh, email us and call us and text us during hours that we're not supposed to be working. Like we need to set those boundaries too so that we can have a family life and we can have our own life outside of school. Like it's not, I, I, under, I understand that you're going to bed later because you don't have to wake up at certain times if you don't have to be on Google Meets and stuff like that. But I'm sorry, that's not my issue to deal with. <laughs> Right. you know so and, and I think we've as, as as a society in the United States I think we're very conditioned to think that it's acceptable or that it's appropriate for an educator to be available on call all the time and I think there's this like mindset that because we are passionate about what we do and because we love what we do, that it is who we are. And I think people forget like it, it's not appropriate <laughs> and it shouldn't be commonplace to right. expect that an educator would be so readily available outside of their contract hours or outside of their working hours. Um, I think it's something that we've conditioned ourselves as a society to think is normal, but it shouldn't be. And we need to set those boundaries as educators. So, um, I mean, we've already kind of talked about some of the self-care things that you do, spending time with family and friends and church and stuff. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that list? <laughs> um, a nice bottle of wine. I don't know if you guys can put that on. Um, oh yeah, we'll keep it in there. It's okay. <laughs> no, I think just it's, I know for me, I, because I am very type A personality and I am more of a go-getter, for me, I have to be more structured about setting those boundaries for myself um, I'm a perfectionist. And so with that comes 
some of the downsides of being a perfectionist. And so it's very important that I am taking time to turn off, that I have to consciously make that decision because otherwise I would be going nonstop. I mean, I'll be honest, the last three days I've spent of my winter break, my vacation, I've spent lesson planning. I have, it's what we do, but I also knew that I would have to do some of that. And so I told myself, you have three days and that's it. If you don't get it done in three days, you're doing it when you get home. Um, and so I, I think it is important. You have to set those boundaries to be able to have that family life. Um, I'm here, I'm visiting my parents out of town. It's the, I get to see them twice a year. Do I really want to take my entire time that I get to spend with my family doing schoolwork? No. So it, it is important that you are taking care of yourself and setting aside that time to take care of yourself. Um, and if taking care of yourself means sleeping in, if it means taking a bubble bath, if it means having a nice glass of wine, if it means going to a movie, if it means taking a walk, <laughs> then that's what you need to make sure you do. And you need to be intentional about it because if you don't take care of yourself, how can you take care of others? How can you be the best teacher that you want to be? It's, un it's not healthy and you can't teach your students and you can't show them how to be a well-rounded adult if you're not taking care of yourself. Yeah, I absolutely agree. With that being said, are there any ways that you bring self-care or like emotional wellness into the classroom with your students? Yeah, of course. I speak with my students all the time. Um, teaching high school, it looks a little different than I think it looks for elementary or middle school. But I do talk a lot with my students. We talk a lot about empathy and understanding. Um, I do a lot of social, emotional, you know, I have a lot of students who face or who are dealing with extreme anxiety. We've seen an upsurge of that in the last couple of years. I saw it before, but I've seen an upsurge of it in the last couple of years. And so I do take time to make sure that I am talking with students or demonstrating to students how to take care of themselves. Um, we do take breaks in class. We do bring in humor and lightheartedness. Um, I had in the last, uh, last week of school, um, one of my students came in with his guitar. He's taking guitar class. And, you know, I took probably 15 minutes of class time and I was like, do you want to play for us? And he was like, sure. And he played for us. And we all just kind of sat and listened and relaxed and enjoyed that. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to take that time and be like, there's an agenda. Yeah, we have to get things done. But it's also healthy to show kids that you can take time out and like take care of yourself. And so I do a lot of that, but I also, I also try to instill in my students responsibility. And uh, one of my classroom rules is raise your expectations. And so uh, 
that comes up a lot in my class. Um, and not just about work, but you know, if kids are making good choices or if they're talking negatively about themselves, um, a lot of times I'll pause and I'll talk with them and I'll say, are you lowering your expectations of yourself right now? Or are you raising your expectations? And when you talk negatively about yourself, you're lowering your expectations. You need to raise them. You're better than that. And so those kinds of conversations happen. They're more fluid and they come up as they need to in class. They're not really structured into the lesson, um, but they are an integral part of my classroom atmosphere, I guess, is what you would say. Nice. And yes, I, I agree. Teaching social emotional stuff to high schoolers looks a lot differently than it does teaching it to elementary age children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you see that maybe you have a student that is specifically struggling with that stuff, any emotional, social, mental health stuff, do you have any specific ways that you bring parents in to um, like together work on those issues? Yeah. So I think one thing that is hard is, and you probably saw it growing up too. I know I did is as I moved up through school, like my parents really involved elementary school, middle school, they were still pretty involved, but then my high school, they, it kind of tapers off, right? Which makes sense. Kids are getting closer to being out on their own. They're growing up, they're becoming more adult, they're young adults. And so we're trying to instill in them this responsibility and this idea of like, you need to start taking care of yourself and eventually you'll be on your own. So you need to start heading that way. But I will say as a teacher in the high school level, the hardest thing is when you do reach out to a parent and there's no answer or you can't get a hold of anyone. Um, and so those times, a lot of times I learn things from parents that I don't know. I mean, kids aren't an open book and we have files of background information, but it doesn't have everything in it. And there's so much that I can gain as an educator from a parent. So when I'm able to make those connections with parents, I value those connections because honestly, they give me insight into the child, um, into my students. And so when I can get a parent to give me some of that insight. Sometimes it's, I just need your help or I need you to tell me like, what am I not understanding? Um, that is huge when I can make those connections. And I think it's important for parents to know that like, yeah, your kid is a young adult and they're heading into adulthood where they're going to be on their own, but you're still their parent. Like you're still an active member or role in their life that can never be replaced. And so when, when given the opportunity, I know it's maybe not always fun to hear from a teacher, but sometimes it's not bad. You know, like I contact home because I want to tell parents great things their kids are doing. And if I'm not able to do that, it's challenging. And so when I can get a hold of parents and when I can connect with them, that's huge. I, I have a student this year who is struggling a lot. His 
dad passed away um, last year. He was really close to his dad and um, he's struggling. And I had no clue that was even part of his history. That's not in his file anywhere. And so all I knew was, hey, you know, most of the time this kid is awesome in my class, but when he's having a bad day, it's a bad day. And nothing I do or say is going to change how he acts. And I had tried multiple times to get a hold of parents, never got through, never got through, never got through. And then finally I did get through and had this amazing conversation with this kid's mom and learned so much about just what was going on in his life that I didn't know. And so now I have this whole abundance of ways that I now know how to approach him or how to help him when he is having one of those off days. And even just knowing like, Hey, this kid had a really close relationship with his dad and his dad just passed away. Like that's huge information for me to know as an educator that I can't find in a file anywhere. That's something I found from a communication with a parent and just even letting that mom know, like I'm on your side, like I'm not going to give up on your kid. Yeah, he's struggling and it's difficult right now, but you have an ally in me. Like I'm going to work with you you can work with me. Your kid's not alone. You're not alone. I'm here to support you and I'm here to support your kid. And that's huge. And so I think that's really valuable. And I think that's the kind of communication that needs to be happening with teachers and with parents, letting them know that I'm not just here to tell your kid you about your kid's grades or <laughs> about how your kid might have misbehaved today. I'm here to help you and I'm here for you to help me. Yeah, for sure. I just wish we had more time in the day to be able to do it all, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I think you bring up a really valid point though that that all educators can really val- you know, take from like there are so many things that aren't in a kid's file that we don't know. And, and going into those types of situations, knowing that we don't know everything can be really helpful, even though it's like, well, I have no idea what I don't know, but it can maybe help us with having a little bit more grace and compassion. And empathy. I always think, you know, a kid is not a bad kid just because they're a bad kid. There's always something that stems from that. That's something I saw prevalent in Alaska is kids are not inherently bad. They might be facing some kind of trauma or they might have a difficult home situation. And my role is to help them. And I'm not a counselor. I can't give counseling services to kids. I'm not qualified to do that, but I can listen. I can be patient. I can show kids grace. Um, I tell my students when they're having a bad day and I talk with them, I always try to do that privately. So a lot of times I might pull a kid out in the hallway and I always tell them the good thing about this conversation that's happening right here that we're having right now is you think that maybe you're in trouble or that I'm going to hold this against you. But the second you walk back in my classroom, you get a fresh start and you get to make of that fresh start, what you want to make of that fresh start. 
And I'm going to walk back into that classroom as if nothing ever happened. And you get this opportunity to change that. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's something we need to do as educators is we need to have that open mind and know that kids are kids and they're going through things sometimes that adults would struggle with. And we have more coping skills than they do. And so giving them that opportunity to know that it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have an off day, but you have to, you have to make of that what you will. And if you're being given an opportunity to turn it around, then take it, take the opportunity, know that there's someone here who's going to help you and support you and turn it around with their help and support. And that's what I try to do. Yeah, for sure. And um, like, I know I have, I have kids who will struggle and it usually comes off as like major attitude or um, like defiance. And instead of just like a write up or like getting super frustrated and angry about it, I try and do the same thing as you and pull them aside and be like, look, this is not normal, typical behavior of you. Obviously there's something going on. And if you don't want to tell me about it, that's fine. Um, But you know, here's your, here's your pass for the day, but let's, um, let's figure it out. And like, this can't continue to happen. Like we need to, we need to, we need to get better at it. So let's figure it out together. How can we, how can we make tomorrow a better day or even like start fresh today? Like I've had some kids who are like, I just can't work right now. And I'm like, okay, here's your one day pass. Um, I, but understand, like, I'm not just going to be every single day. Oh, you had a bad day. Um, Okay. You get a free pass again today. It's not going to be like that. So we need to figure it out at the same time. Right. And I think also, because I think especially at the high school level, a lot of what we see is like attitude or what we would consider defiance. Um, But I think one thing too, as a teacher is it's not personal. Like they're not doing it to just be against you or to be, you know, a little turd again, you know, it's not (laughs) personal. It's not like a personal attack. And so I think, like, I remember when I was in high school, I, I definitely had some salty attitude days. That's just part of growing up. And so I think that's important too, to remember that it's not personal and don't take it personally and don't respond to it as if it's a personal attack. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think here we'll move into our last three little questions to end the episode. Um, first, we want to thank you so much for, for joining us and agreeing to do this interview. I think um, you've given a lot of really awesome insights and, and ideas, especially those rules, I think, um, is one really important takeaway that, that all educators can take from this conversation we've had today. So thank you for that. Um, all right, so these rapid questions, the first one, is what are you grateful for in this current season of your life? Um, I am grateful, (laughs) there are so many things, but I think the biggest thing that I'm grateful for right now, especially because of with everything that's going on with COVID is um, that I am able to still be like connect with my family to still be able to travel with them. But also I'm so thankful that I, 
like physically we can be with people now. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how much we've taken that for granted, but to like physically be in the same room as someone I'm super grateful for. Absolutely. All right. Number two, what book are you reading or what podcast are you listening to right now? Um, so I'm a huge true crime fan. So I love crime junkie. I binge listened to it the other day while I was lesson planning. Uh, <laughs> it didn't affect any of my lesson plans. Um, but I actually just stopped in, uh, I was out walking the dog the other day and there was a little library, a free library in my neighborhood. And I grabbed a book from the free library. It's called the book borrowers. And I'm really excited to read it. The back sounded really interesting. It's about these two friends who became friends growing up, going to the library. And then, well, the blurb on the back says some kind of trauma happens and they separate. And is is their love of books going to bring them together? Doesn't that sound like the most English teachery book ever in the world? But yeah, I love it. <laughs> that's the book I grabbed. So from the book library, the free book library in my neighborhood. Oh, how perfect. So forward to it. <laughs> yeah. It's a perfect book to pick up in a little free library. Right? <laughs> yeah. All right. And then last, what is a daily routine or maybe a part of a routine that you're really proud of? Oh, um, that is a tough question. I don't have a lot of like firm daily routines, but one thing that I do every single day is I have, um, on my phone, I have the Bible app and every single day I do a daily devotion on the Bible app. And I think that's really helpful for me to stay grounded and to stay focused in my personal faith. And so I do that every day. I love that. That's a great thing. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it's fun. We want to thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about healthy family living. We would love to hear your thoughts or any ideas you have for future episodes. So feel free to message us at the teacher mama's podcast at gmail.com or the teacher mama's podcast on Instagram. It would also mean so much to us if you would leave a quick rating or review on whatever platform you're listening from. If something really stood out to you today, don't forget to share it with someone else in your life that might need to hear it too. Spread the word. Please don't forget to share with your online community and tag us. For more positivity and inspiration on how we navigate life and the things we do on a daily basis to stay sane in the crazy, don't forget to go follow each of us on Instagram. Check the show notes for our handles.